So let's break down a squat and a split squat in regard to early and late propulsion. Good morning. Happy Monday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, coming off a stellar weekend. Um, going into a great week, I think, but let's dig into um, Monday's Q&A. And this was with Misha. And Misha and I had a little bit of a time difference here, about eight hours. So Misha's from Russia, which you will notice um, in our communications. Um, but really on point, really sharp guy, really great question in regards to how does the early and late propulsive action influence what we perceive in a squat or how we coach a split squat. So there's a lot of detail in this call and I think it's gonna be useful for a lot of people. So Misha, thank you so much for your participation in this one and great questions. So we'll just go right into the call. If you have any questions, post them up here on the Instagram or um, this will be up on YouTube later today, obviously, and you can post your questions there. Um, go to askbillhartman at gmail.com if you'd like to get on a 15-minute consultation as this call represents, and then we will see you tomorrow. All right, Misha, clock has started. Sure. What is your question, young man? Uh, so my question uh, is about uh, early and late propulsion yep. as it relates to the squat and the split squat. Okay. So Perfect. from watching a couple of your videos, as far as I understand, in the beginning of the squat, at the top part of the squat, that will be uh, late propulsion. And then the bottom part of the squat, that will be early propulsion. Correct. Right? And then, right. Uh, so <clears throat> I, I guess uh, my question is, first of all, if somebody needs to get early propulsion and they don't have access to mid propulsion, there's no way you can put them at the bottom of a squat. They're not going to be able to get there. So the, the, a better variation would be a split squat. Correct. Okay. So, so let's be really clear about what we're describing when we're talking about the early and late representations of propulsion. Okay. Because people get distracted by, by extremities. So, so, so people will say, well, you have a contralateral gait pattern. Well, if you look at the arms and the legs, you're correct. But if we look at the axial skeleton, everything turns in the same direction, okay? Mm -hmm. And so, so if we're just gonna look at the pelvis, okay? Um, we'll, we'll look at, at the position of the sacrum, all right? So if I am in a position of early propulsion, that's a, that's a counter-nutated, externally rotated position, but it, it's the sacrum moving backwards, sacrum moving backwards on the ilium. So this is the yielding action that I always talk about. This is the expansive strategy that's associated with the expansion of connective tissues as you make contact with the ground. So you have to have contact with the ground to be really, really good at this yielding, yielding action. So when I have a left, let's just say left foot forward on a split squat, as I it, imagine I was stepping into a lunge, okay? If I was stepping into a lunge where my foot has not touched the ground yet, I can push this forward. The ilium will push forward and it turns the sacrum away from the front foot, okay? Mm -hmm. 
that's a late propulsive representation because the sacrum's turning away from the leg that I'm stepping with. As the foot touches the ground and I come down and I put that foot into an early propulsive position where the first metatarsal head starts to hit the ground, now this turns the other way. And this is the yielding action that we're talking about, okay? Mm -hmm. So this is the difference in, in a squat. So a squat doesn't have the rotation associated with it that a split stance would. That's why it appears to be different, but we're, but we're still talking about the, the, the position of the sacrum. So as I initiate a squat and people will say, well, it's early hip flexion, it must be early propulsion. It's like, no, because the sacral position is what determines what phase of propulsion that we're in. So as I initiate the squat, I am, I am ER'd, right? But I got both iliums pushing forward into ER in that position at the initiation of the squat. So it's still counter-nutation relative to the position of the ilium, right? It's still ER relative to the position of the ilium, but it's, it's overcoming in that position as I initiate the squat. When I get below the sticking point and I start to re-counter nutate, that's the sacrum moving backwards on the ilium. And that's why that would be the early propulsive strategy. So at the bottom of the squat, I need the yield. As I initiate the squat, I'm in the overcoming action of the connective tissues. The, rep, the relative position of the sacrum and the ilium are the same, but the connective tissue behaviors are different. So that's the difference between early and late propulsion. Early propulsion has a yielding action. Late propulsion has the overcoming action. So, so I'm storing energy at the bottom of a squat, right? I release the energy at the top of the squat. If I'm stepping forward, right? I have, I have stiff connective tissues as the leg is moving forward in the swing. As it hits the ground, I have to absorb the energy back into the connective tissues. That's the sacrum moving backwards on the ilium to create the yield and the, and this, the energy storage action. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yep. Yep. That makes perfect sense. Does that answer your question? Sorry? Does that answer your question? Yes. Yes, it does. Uh, so, uh, basically, if we want early, still you would go with a split squat because the, the top position, because of the rotational aspect of the pelvis, yes. you get the early, early propulsion. Correct, because I'm creating the rotation, right? Mm -hmm. That rotation allows me to be very selective. So, I can put your left foot on the ground in a split squat and I can create an overcoming action, or I could turn the pelvis and create, or I'm sorry, turn the sacrum. I could turn the sacrum and create the yielding action if I want to, right? So that's not one or the other. It's, it's how I am, I am coaching and positioning people as they're moving through this split stance orientation. So I can turn the sacrum away from the front leg and maintain that late propulsive strategy on the lead leg, or I can turn the sacrum into the lead leg. So when, you, when we were talking about um, the offset weight, right? Mm -hmm. so if I have a left leg forward split squat, I put the weight in the right hand, that's gonna help me capture the early propulsive strategy on that left side because the offset weight's gonna turn the sacrum towards the lead leg, right? Okay. If I put the 
same side as the lead leg, it turns me away. And now I create the overcoming action. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, yeah. And then if you pull the front knee, so let's just say the left knee, if you pull it into yourself. That's turning. That, the, so that's just turning the sacrum. So you're, yes, I think you're on the right track. Finish your statement. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. So, uh, because, uh, so that'll also create a yielding, uh, uh, early propulsion type activity and then push you forward would, would uh, do the opposite. That is correct. There you go. So, so, so the, the thing that, that, that I want you to realize, and you're actually helping a lot of other people understand this by asking this question. The thing that I, that I want you to realize is it's how you execute the activity. It's not the activity that, that is, is fixed. Like there's not one way for me to perform a split stance activity. There's not one way for me to perform a bilateral symmetrical activity. I, I need to understand the, the, the mechanics of the axial skeleton as to how I'm cueing it to achieve the desired result. Okay. And then if we are, um, I guess I have a couple of questions on this. So, uh, okay. the, the first, uh, so the first one, uh, if you're pulling your, knee into yourself okay so you're turning the sacrum towards the front leg yeah you turn it towards the front leg you're creating a yielding strategy on the back okay uh, but i also heard you talk about if you pull the knee in you're biasing yourself towards internal rotation uh R correct because so 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 think about the 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 position and the the turns okay so I'm, I'm gonna walk you through, we're gonna use the left side again, all right? Mm -hmm. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna walk you through the sacral position, okay? So if I push the ilium forward and I turn the sacrum away, you follow so far? That's a late propulsive strategy on this side. So it's an ER ilium, counter-nutated sacrum right there, okay? Mm -hmm. Bam. If I've got, so this is my lead leg on the split squat. All right, so I'm gonna to start to turn the sacrum towards the ilium, okay? So this is an ER'd position, see it? Okay, and then I'm gonna to start to turn the sacrum. So there's a point where this sacrum starts to face more forward relative to the ilium, and that's an internally rotated exhaled position of the pelvis. See how it changes, right? Then if I keep going, if I keep turning the sacrum, this is gonna move back on the, the ilium and then there's my yielding action. So I go through an externally rotated position, I move towards internal and then I ER again, depending how far I turn the sacrum. So the sacrum always has to move through this sequence of events. Mm -hmm. Does that make okay. sense? Yeah. So if I'm just performing a split squat and I'm doing it like the normal way. What's the normal way? I, so I'm, I'm not pushing my knee forward. I'm not pushing it. I'm not actively pushing it forward or okay. actively backwards. So the lead side is in a late propulsive strategy. Late propulsive strategy. Because the pelvis is turned to the right. Because the sacrum is turned to the right. The, 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 the sacrum, yeah, is turned to the right. 
really specific because we use the extremities to turn the sacrum. It's not about it's not about the 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 pelvis per se. We say the pelvis sometimes, but let's be really specific about the sacrum for now, so we don't create confusion. Okay, so okay. Go leg forward, lead leg is is left, and the sacrum is turned to the right. So that's a late propulsive strategy. Go ahead. Okay, then from that point. I don't change anything and I go down into the split squat. Yep. I'm going, my pelvis, my, uh, I guess, uh, my uh, sacrum is going to turn to the left as I'm going down and I'm going to go towards a mutated uh, position, right? You got it. And then if I uh, pull the knee forward, I'm going to start in a more right-oriented position so I'm not going to hit that mutated position as much when I go down because so, I'm starting in a more turned position. So, so you use the right words. You said not as much. That's a key element, right? Because you're going to move in that direction because you've got to produce force. Okay. Yeah. Now, so here's, here's what I would offer. If you're not going to mutate as much, you still need to put force into the ground as you descend into the split squat. So if you don't get sufficient mutation of the sacrum, which is representative of your internal rotation capabilities, you're going to have to create a compensation to produce enough force into the ground. Mm -hmm. So we're gonna see another IR strategy show up somewhere. So maybe the pelvis orients its entire position forward. Maybe we see an excessive pronation. Maybe we see a forward head. So, so again, this is why we see these compensatory strategies executed in the gym because people are still going to produce internal rotation. You have to. There is no, there's no way around it. You cannot produce force in these externally rotated positions. So that's why we see compensatory strategies. So you have just answered several questions for a lot of people because uh, if I don't have internal rotation available to me, I will compensate. People say, well, why do you see the pelvis tilt forward? Why do they lack hip extension? Because these are all representative of people that are trying to produce force in an ER pelvic position, but they're superimposing IR from somewhere else because it's not coming from the hip. Mm -hmm. Does that make okay. sense? Yes, yes. Okay, great call. Cool. Thank you. Uh, thank you for taking time on a Saturday morning to talk to me. You're very welcome, Thanks, sir. Uh, Have a great evening over there in, in uh, uh, Russia, okay? Yeah. Right. Bye. How about we talk about clenching your teeth and creating extension for performance? Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand, and it is perfect. All right. It is Tuesday, um, clinic day today, so very, very busy. Got a lot to do uh, before we roll into the clinic. So let's dig into today's Q&A. And today's Q&A is with, with Sarah, and I've known Sarah for a little while now. Um, she actually went through the intensive, and so we communicate on a regular basis um, with ongoing communication in that regard. And um, finally got a chance to talk to her face-to-face, -face, which is fun. And we talked a little bit about some some issues associated with with people that that clench their teeth, especially at night, and influence of guards and things like that. But the, then we went into um, a situation where you actually need to create what it would be considered traditional spinal extension 
for performance. So we were talking about gymnastics and, and a couple of other sports, but there are situations where we actually want to use these compensatory strategies for force performance. And so we talked about how to create some of those situations. So this is a pretty interesting call. Um, I'm sure you will enjoy it. For those of you that would like to participate in a 15 minute consultation, just go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, put in your request, throw me a question, and we'll get that arranged. We got a few calls to get through yet. So, so there's a little bit of a backlog, so please be patient. Um, have a great Tuesday. Here's the call, and I'll see you tomorrow. All right, we are recording. Sarah, what is your question? Okay, so for a client who has difficulties with clenching at night and during the day, what would you suggest for some solutions, and why would the client be doing this? Okay, so so think about what 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 clenching is. It's internal rotation. It's force production. Okay, so so they're trying to to create an element of, of compression and control and increased muscle activity for whatever reason it may be. So, so if we were looking at any exercise and we saw a compensation for, for a lack of internal rotation somewhere, you would see like an anterior orientation, you would see excessive, what people would call excessive pronation, et cetera, et cetera. So this is a pronate, if, if they're clinching equally on both sides, let's just say that they are, okay? That's a bilateral internal rotation strategy. So, so again, they're looking for a, for a position of control. They're trying to restrict movement. Most likely, most likely you're gonna see it show up in the upper cervical spine. So, so the, the, the upper cervical spine and the mandible would move together. And so if I clench, I am not allowing that to move. Okay, so they're trying to find stability in the upper C spine by- However you wanna define that is okay by me. I would say that they're trying to produce force downward to hold position for whatever reason it may be. Okay. So do those night guards that they, the dentists give people to like stop them from clenching, do those help then? Or not? They don't stop them from clenching. They just give them space. And so, so again, so you're, 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 you're moving the mandible down and forward, which is the opposing strategy, right? To, to whatever degree. So you're going to get a reduction in, in, in output potentially. The idea would be is that we have to kind of look at this whole thing systemically and say, okay, number one, why are you, you know, and, the why to whatever degree that we can figure this out because we rarely know why anyway, right? We, we apply strategies based on probability to, to produce the outcome. But, but again, the, the goal then is to try to, to give them a, an alternative to the strategy that they're using that reduces the impact of, of that strategy to begin with. So it's, it's just like anyone else. If, if somebody is using a compensatory strategy for internal rotation, so we were, if we were looking at somebody's feet and we said, oh, they have an internal rotation strategy, so they pronate a lot. And if that's creating part of the problem, we would give them some, some form of orthotic solution to reduce the, the um, translation of the tibia over the foot to slow that down. So that reduces the, the strategy. So you might do something orally to do the same thing. So if I put an orthotic in your mouth, what do you think that is? It's the same thing as putting the orthotic underneath the foot. It's just a strategy that allow, that gives them the alternative, right? Allows them to access a, a broader scope of options, which in many cases, thankfully, alleviates the symptoms. Okay. Is that it?
No. <laughs> oh, okay. I didn't think so. Wow. Um, yeah, it's like, I'd be like the shortest Q&A call of all time. <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's your other question? Okay. So my other question that I was coming up with is, I guess it's kind of in regards to me a little bit. So um, how would you go about progressing somebody who wanted to be able to do like a backbend bridge, not necessarily walking out into it, but like a gymnastics bridge where they fully bridge up. With oh, the extension thing? Yeah. Uh-huh. How would you progress somebody who is to compress both A to P to be able to do something like that? Okay. So, so let's, let's determine first and foremost, what would be the optimal representation to get into that position? Uh, compressed posteriorly would be compressed posteriorly, but and and um, expanded anteriorly. There you go. Now, so here's so here's the question mark that we 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 have to have first and foremost. Um, do they even have the capacity to assume that shape? That's the first question, right? I think to some degree, but probably with compensation. Okay. And, and, and that's, that's, that's fair. But, but the, the, the question mark is, so let's, let's just take like, um, all right, here you go. Eight-year-old gymnast doing a backbend. 35-year-old female doing a backbend. Okay. Huh? I said, yes, 35-year-old female doing a backbend. Okay. But, but, but let's make the comparison here. Which one, which one do you think has the greatest capacity for the soft tissues to yield sufficiently to allow that to occur? The eight-year-olds. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's, a, that's, a, that's actually an element that we have to take into consideration, okay. right? So, so if I have, if I have uh, flexible pars on my spine, guess what? I have greater access to the compressive strategy on the posterior side. Than, than someone else. You ever see those little girls that can, they, they lay on their belly and they kind of prop up on their hands and then they put their feet on the back of their head. So they don't have hip extension. Oh, under, they, do. they don't have hip extension. They are, they are in the, the negative degrees of hip extension when they're doing that. What they do have the capacity to do is create the compressive strategy, the anti-orientation and the nutation position that allows them to access that position because that is an ir position. Oh, right. interesting. Okay. Yeah. How about that? I wouldn't have thought of that. I would yeah. assume that they would have They're had to Think about it. They're pushing hard into the ground. So when the spine goes forward, that was what we call traditional extension. So they're using a massive amount of internal rotation to get into that position. Okay. Yeah. That's an, that's an orientation all day, every day. There's no expansion. Yeah. There's no expansion on the backside of their body there, okay. which is it, which is advantageous from from a gymnastics standpoint because everything that they do is is based on that orientation. That's why we see the pars defects and, and such in in all the young gymnasts that we see. Some of them are actually, I mean, that, that's a byproduct of performance, and they use it to their advantage, right? It gives them gives them the movement capabilities that they need. In a minute. Oh, I like your shirt. It looks very good. <laughs> um, okay. So the first step would be to get some sort of anterior expansion. All day, all day, every day. Yeah, for sure. So, so, so this is, this is where you're actually going to start to, to train a, comp a compensatory strategy for performance purposes. So think about it. It's like for every element of dorsal rostral expansion that I have, I just made it harder for them to assume this position. Okay. But, but you need to create the, the anterior expansion. 
So, so think about, um, oh, what would be a really good represent, um, a, uh, 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 it's called, I think it's called like a tabletop or something like that, um, like in yoga, it, where, where they're, they're sort of like in that crab walk position, but with the hips up. Yeah. That so so you want to see the, the you want to see the the posterior aspect of the pelvis get compressed and the posterior thorax get compressed. There's your position, because okay. the only place that you can expand is anteriorly. Okay. Right. So so again, any strategy that's going to to promote posterior compression, anterior expansion from a performance standpoint. Remember, we're trying to achieve something that that demands a compensatory strategy. This is not normal relative motion, right. okay? And we need to make sure that we take that into consideration and that, and that anybody that's actually watching this understands that, yeah. that's right? It's like all of this movement that we're talking about is not, is not necessarily related to acquiring health. We are trying to acquire a position for performance purposes. Right. Okay. Okay. Does that answer your question? I think so. So tabletop position and then working. I'm, I'm just using that as a representation. So, so under normal circumstances, if we were talking about, let's say a typical physical therapy patient, we might be talking quadruped activities, which would, which would create a concentric orientation posteriorly and allow the, the pump handle and the, and the pubis to expand forward. Okay. Right? So, so depending on who we're talking about, where we're starting, we, we just have to understand where we are um, in, in space to produce the, the movement. But for like, like, again, for a back bend, that would be in this extreme position. It's all compensatory. Okay. Athletes use compensatory strategies to produce force all the time because the amount of force that they have to produce is extreme. So if we were talking about a baseball pitcher, we'd be having the same conversation at the point of maximum propulsion, the baseball pitcher, they're using a compensatory strategy to stop movement, to allow the velocity to be demonstrated for a gymnast. We're creating a massive amount of posterior compression to create an anterior expansion, which allows them to assume all the amazing positions that they use but they're all compensations. Would you still need more of that overhead ER top ER position though to get there? No, no because think about it. So, so they're gonna use a posterior compressive strategy. They're gonna use anterior expansion and orientation. So they're actually gonna tip the thorax back backwards. They're going to be in an IR position with the arm overhead because under most circumstances, especially for a gymnast, if their arm is overhead, they're producing force. And I cannot produce force in an ER position. So there's a big difference between acquiring ER relative motion and producing an overhead arm position under force because it's got to be IR up there. And so you've got to create the IR orientation. That's why we got to talk about creating space for movement and producing force and movement because people want to get carried away with like, oh, this position is always ER. No, it's not because it depends on the physical shape of your body in space. That's what determines whether we're talking about ERs and IRs. When we're talking about relative motions, we have nice transitions between expansion, compression, and expansion again. When we're right. talking about performance, it's IR because that's where the force is produced. Okay. Velocity, velocity is demonstrated in ER. They're not the same. Okay. 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 Cool. cool. Yeah. You've got, you've got two minutes. Okay. Got a quick um, So someone who has, who struggles with um, compressive strategies posteriorly at both like 
C6, C7, and at the the top part of the sacrum of the yep. pelvis yep. Um, for management strategies. And they've kind of got tightness all the way down the right side of their back as well. What okay. would you suggest is like top priority when working with someone who's got like it down the whole entire yep. thing? Okay. So, so let's think about why this would happen. So you've got dorsal rostral compression and you, and so that would lead to what would be considered traditional lower cervical extension. There is no turning there. You have to have dorsal rostral expansion and lower cervical flexion to create turns. Same rule applies at the, at the base of the sacrum and the, and the lower part of the lumbar spine. First order of business is I've got to create a, a yielding action to allow that expansion to occur, right? Because right. that's going to allow the turns to occur. And that's going to alleviate the, the constant orientation that's creating this compressive strategy in the first place. And so under the under these circumstances, depending and again, depending on the environment that we're working in and what we're trying to acquire, these are going to be sort of like the a lot of the, the sideline um, short amplitude turns and rolls, but I'm gonna fix, I'm gonna fix. The, the, the cranium and the upper cervical spine, and I'm gonna to try to get everything to turn below it. Oh, okay. It, because this counter turns to the lower cervical spine. So if I do this, right. right if I try to drive it top down, good luck, not gonna happen, right? I'm gonna fix this and then I'm gonna turn them down here. So you Does would want them to keep their head like on a pillow essentially. Well, yeah, but don't let the head turn. Don't let the head turn. Right. So if the pillow is here, I'm doing this. I'm not doing that. So you want them to keep their head with the roll then? I want to, I, no, I, no, they, it turns separate. It turns separate. So their eyes would be fixed straight ahead. Their nose is always fixed straight ahead. And then, so if I was laying on my right side, yeah. I would roll my left shoulder forward, but my, but my head position would not change. Okay. See it? Yeah. Because I want the lower cervical spine to, to, to turn relative to the upper cervical. So relative motion is what restores the comfort. Right. Okay. So that's what we're shooting for. Does mm -hmm. that help you? It does. Awesome. Great call. Thanks. I appreciate you. Me too. Thank yeah. you. So let's dig into some pelvis and rib cage mechanics. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, today is Wednesday. Busy day, tight schedule, but quick reminder, Coffee and Coaches Conference call tomorrow morning, 6 a.m. Link will be on my professional Facebook page. Please join us. Those of you that are gonna, gonna join us for the call, make sure you have seen all of the most recent uh, coaching consultations. We're gonna pick the best one that everybody likes the best, and we're gonna send them some, some free stuff, so, so please join us. Okay. Um, today's Q&A comes from Manuel, who actually joins us on the uh, Coffee and Coaches Conference call quite frequently. And we dig into some, some axial skeletal mechanics, starting with some diaphragm discussion, getting into some rib cage and, and, and pelvic dynamics. And, and we talk a little bit more about uh, the, the right oblique orientation um, of the pelvis. For those of you that, that aren't familiar, this would be associated with, with a compressive strategy that, that occurs here in the pelvis and it, and it drives the, the sacrum up and the, the left ilium up and over. And so what we end up with is a, an orientation 
that brings the, the left pelvis up and over on the right side. So this is just one of the potential compensatory strategies. But we, we dig into that a little bit more because I think a lot of people get a little confused with it. So I think it's a very, very useful call. Manuel's actually asking some really good questions on this that I think um, those of you that are interested in this mechanical element and trying to understand it will find very, very useful. So enjoy the call today. I will see you guys tomorrow at 6 a.m. Coffee and Coaches Conference call as usual. Have a great day. Okay. All right, Manuel, what's your question? Um, I had a couple of questions. Um, uh, first, I wanted to talk about the, the diaphragm. And I was wondering, um, you know, we've talked about how um, there's asymmetry in the body. Does, it, does, the, does the diaphragm go straight down or does it go down kind of unevenly or does it go down like at an angle to follow the current of the body? So, so think about it. It depends on what we're doing, right? Uh, it, yeah, I would guess in normal respiration. Right. So if you, if you look, all you can do is go to, go to Google images and pull up a bunch of uh, chest x-rays and you'll see, you'll see an asymmetrical representation internally. Mm. Um, some of this is due to, to uh, abdominal contents and, and then it's about pressure management and position management. And so you'll see, a, you'll see degrees of this, of this asymmetrical representation, but you'll see some that actually look quite symmetrical as well. And so again, it's going to depend on some of your, your structural elements and, and then also again, movement behaviors because we have to push abdominal contents around and we have to control the position of them as they are creating all of these momentums and turns inside. And so again, we, I, I talk a lot about this non-uniform representation uh, of the diaphragm under most circumstances because of the the shape of the abdominal contents, the position of the abdominal contents and gravity, that's what's gonna produce a lot of this asymmetrical representation. Both sides will go down, but you can find research on this. They actually, they actually study the position of, of the diaphragm and you'll see that under certain circumstances, you'll see a limited excursion on one side versus the other. Um, so there's nothing unusual about it, um, but, but to, to get caught up in, in degrees of, of things, I don't think I'd worry too much about it. Just understand the general representations and as to how that might influence how we move the, the air volume around inside so we create these shapes and turns and such. Mm -hmm. um, so does that mean that one side will expand more than the other as you breathe? Potentially. Potentially. Mm -hmm. you, have, you, have, you, have, you have uneven forces in the abdomen. Mm -hmm relative to the influence of gravity, the, the volume of the guts, the, the weight of the guts all create demand, right? So if, if, you know, I have a huge small intestine that's in there, that's gonna be biased in, in a certain position. I've got a big liver that's biased in a certain position. And I, I talk about those because their, their volumes are actually very, very great. And they actually create forces in the same direction. So I have a lot of internal volume that produces a lot of, a lot of uneven force. And so I have to control that. The diaphragm is one element of one element of that. We have a lot of musculature in the axial skeleton and, and superficially that's going to control those positions. So once I superimpose other demands other than just gravity against uh, whatever structure I have while I'm breathing. I also have the influence of, of movement and, and you know, as well as I do that as soon as you put a heavy barbell in somebody's hands, a lot of stuff changes too. Right.
Okay. Yeah, and you know, it, um, you know that 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 question came up because from the early coaches co uh, coffee call that we had because we were huh? talking about like a tube, and then if you, you know, how how the diaphragm is within that tube, and if you squeeze one side, it expands. Correct. You have, you have pressure on one side, you have uh, expansion on the other side. So. Yeah. There's a. I tell you what, if 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 you look up and again go to Google Images, it's always fun to look at this stuff. But if you get if you do a search on Barry Sanders back when he was a running back for the Detroit Lions. Mm -hmm. And if you want to see some of the coolest representations of an athletic performance where somebody is compressing one side of their body and expanding the other, there's some great pictures of him because mm -hmm. he was, he was the best at shape change that, uh, that I've ever seen as a running back. Um, it's pretty, pretty impressive um, mm -hmm. as far as what he was capable of doing. Um, and, and again, it, it just gives you a nice little visual. It's like, oh, I can see how you have to compress here to create this turn or this shift. Cool. Yeah. yeah. And then, um, so uh, another question I had was, when, whenever you have a, an asymmetrical ISA, mm -hmm. uh, I think you regard that as a, as a twist. Like yeah. The twisted. Yeah, um, just a bigger twist. So uh, do you expect the pelvis to turn in the direction of the the wider side or do you, or do you expect a, um, the, uh, you know, uh, the pelvis to go, uh, the thorax to go one way and the pelvis to stay facing another way or go the opposite way. Okay. So, so the upper thorax and the pelvis are going to turn in the same direction. Yeah. We've talked about that. That's why okay. I was. Yeah. But here's, here's where the confusion is going to lie. And here's why you'll get different opinions. It depends on where you look as to how you describe the turns. Mm. Because if you look at the spine segmentally, you have relative position changes in the spine from segment to segment. So if I was looking at say a T5 relative to the T10, I would say that they were turned in opposite directions. And so then this creates a massive amount of confusion for people. What we want to look at is, so if, if we use the, the upper back as the representation of dorsal rostral, so that space between the scapula, and if we look at the sacrum, the relative positions that, that they're going to turn is always going to be the same. Mm. Okay. Maybe not to the exact same degree, which again, confounds a lot of people. But what we have to look at is we have to look at the general representations because what we're doing when we move is we're moving the axial skeleton through space with our extremities. So people get really distracted by arm and leg movement and they say, well, this arm's going forward and this arm's going back. So one must be ER, one must be IR. It's like, no, they're both in ER, right? Because I got to create the turn. I got to create the representation through the scapula so I can turn the axial skeleton in the right direction. So this is why we don't want to turn, we don't want to turn the thorax and the, and the sacrum in different directions because it's really uncomfortable and it's almost impossible to breathe if it is possible. Okay. It's a great way. It's a great way to, to put so much stress on the connective tissues that you end up with some form of destruction. In fact. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And then, um, I noted, uh, I, I posted a video, uh, a link to one of your videos about, uh, a right oblique pelvis. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And so I was wondering if the strategies from that video apply to a left oblique orientation or if they would be different. Okay. 
So, so in, in most static circumstances where we're looking at people either in a static position, slow motion or passive range of motion and such, it would be very rare. It'd be very rare to see a, a left oblique orientation. It does happen in performance. In fact, we want it to happen in performance because that is actually one of those limit limiters to performance. So if we, so, you know, all the weightlifting videos and, and pictures that you post on the uh, IFAST university. So, so all of those are going to be in these static symmetrical positions in most cases, unless you're showing me like a split jerk or something like that. Um, and so it's really easy to see these orientations in space. When we're talking about a dynamic athlete that has to change direction. So for me to go into a, like I say, a left side cut. So as I go into a cut and come out of a cut, I'm going to use that left oblique orientation into the cut. And then I'm going to reverse it out of the cut. Okay. But because of the, of the force, the internal forces that, that I'm always managing, there is a bias, okay, to the rotation that occurs inside. And so the right oblique would show up under these, like I said, slow speed, kind of staticky kind of, kind of representations. So if I can acquire a left oblique position, I'm throwing a party because then I know I've got somebody that's got the, the normal representation against the internal forces. And then they can manage those internal forces where they would get magnified. And this is what tip, people typically protect themselves against. So when you're watching an Olympic weightlifter and they start, they, when they go down into their, <clears throat> their catch or their deep squat, and you see that pelvis kind of shift forward in one, one direction, the one knee sticks out farther, the shin angle is steeper on one side than it is on the other. They're actually using that, that strategy to control internal forces and then the magnified external forces. If you can get somebody, and think about this for a second, think about how many people you have that, that use a right leg forward lead on their split jerks. It's pretty rare. It's probably more common to see a left leg forward on, on, a, on, a, the, on the jerk because it's easier for them to manage that position than it is in the alternative. So if you ever get a right leg lead forward, that's probably somebody that's got a pretty decent amount of control in regards to the internal force management and then the weight overhead. And that's probably a decent Olympic weightlifter because then they, they, they can do a lot of this bilateral symmetrical stuff a little bit more effectively than a lot of people can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm actually I'm actually looking into some data about that to see uh, the you know the proportion of people who go right leg versus left leg in elite it, lifting. It's it, I tell you, like I said, it, it's not that there's, there's not right leg leaders. It's just the fact that it's it's a much more difficult element of control. Mm -hmm. um, just because, again, you you always have to look at the combination of influences. So we've got the internal stuff that we always have to manage, right? As, as a human being. And then we have the superimposed loads on top of us with, a, with the barbells. Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at um, like Olympic divers, <clears throat> there are people, there are divers. And I think actually the guy that's ranked number one in the world, I think he can do this too. He can actually spin. Um, he can actually spin in the opposite direction. He can spin to the left, mm -hmm. which is usually very, very, very difficult to do. I mean, I'm sorry, he spins to the right, which is difficult to do. Mm -hmm. 
most people go with it. That's why that's why running tracks turn left. That's why race tracks turn left because they they kind of figured out pretty early on. I would imagine that you know if you try to turn right, you're kind of either slow or you get really sick to your stomach, especially mm. two hundred miles an hour. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's a tough turn. It's a tough turn. All you got to do is, 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 um, if you run a 200 on a, on a, on a running track, right. A t- traditional 200, then run it back, then run it, you know, against the, the typical direction. And, and you'll see how hard it is to make that right-hand turn. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Cause I've been, I've been noticing a lot of different kinds of shape changes in the weightlifters that I'm looking at and I'll, I'll post more on the forum, but you know, I just had a lot of questions about yeah. what I was seeing. And yeah. I wanted to get a better understanding before I, I put it out there. Absolutely. Just keep it coming. Cool. Awesome. All right. Great call, young man. Thank you. Thank you. I will see you. I will see you on the uh, coffee and coaches call as usual. And I'll see you in IFSU. Okay. All right. See you. Oh, there you go. Great <laughs> job. Love the, love the mug. And yeah. well, we'll take that. Have a good mm-hmm. day. Happy Thursday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. By the way, this is stellar this morning. I, I almost threw an internal party. Getting the pelvis in the correct position and the, the, how do you know it's in the correct position? Well, that would be a good, a good question. Okay. So there's no such thing as a good position, right? What we're trying to do is we're trying to recapture adaptability. So we're we're trying to recapture the ability to change. We're not trying to, we're not seeking out a singular anything. Mm -hmm. It is virtually impossible, okay? Even if it was possible, there is absolutely no way to measure it. It's It's like when we talk about the, I'm going to throw up a little bit in my mouth. The neutral spine. It's like, what a crock. You can't tell. You you have no idea where the spine is. Right? You can't tell. So what we're looking for is adaptability. We're looking for changeability, the ability to move through space. And so if you chase something like that, good luck. I think I can show you. Um, two pictures of the same person where they have one leg this early and one leg this late. I might be able to do this. Oh, one second. Have a good day. So let me show you. One second, I got to let Sarah in. Um, so can everybody see the leg? Give me a thumbs up. Okay. So Manuel, if you're looking at this, mm-hmm. where do yeah. you think this, this? So this is a this is a sprinter. This is a, a hurdler. She's a she's a a really good hurdler, but she's like five foot nothing, a hundred nothing. And um, but anyway, um, where do you think she is in this left limb? Do you think she's early or late? Can you see it? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think she's. Pick a shot. You got. You got fifty. Early, she's uh, early. She's more towards her heel. 
Okay, so I want you to look at the I want you to look at the angle of the tibia relative to the ground. Is it forward or is it vertical or is it laying back? It's forward. It's forward. Now look at her toes on the floor. You see the the toes two two three four five. Yeah. You see the curl. So that's yeah. concentric activity on the bottom of the foot. So she's actually late. She's in a late propulsive strategy on this side. Okay, now towards the bottom of the feet. Okay. Now. Can you see the other leg? Mm. You see it? Yeah. Okay. See how the tibia is going backwards? Right. Okay. So now you got an early foot or an early representation anyway, right? You see the difference? Mm -hmm. So again, when we're talking, when we're talking about, you know, some form of representation, we're always talking about ideals, right? So this is what I'm talking about though. So as soon as you start, as, like if you break the knee, to start your squat, that's gonna be where you're gonna start the late propulsive position. With, with the understanding that the stiffness of the constraints make it look different, but the, but the rules are the same. This, okay, is, yeah. this is where I think people get, get really confused is, is um, you know, I, I, I'm fond of saying that you're 99% water and 1% stuff and all the stuff is made from the same stuff. It's just some of it's a little bit stiffer than the other stuff. And so it looks different. So people think it's different, right? But it's not, it's all the same. Cause the minute you start looking at everything being made from the same stuff, then you understand that, oh, it behaves the same too. So it follows the same rules. So a bone can twist, torque, elongate and compress. Well, so can a tendon, well, so can a ligament, well, so can fascia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So it all behaves the same way. So, so the rules don't change. It's just that the shape of the constraint might, might direct it a certain way, right? But it's gonna follow the same, like I said, it follows the same rule. This is why I don't use the C word. Core. Because if, if you think the one in your belly is any different than the one in your elbow or the one in your knee or the one in your ankle or the one in your neck, they're no different. They follow the same rule. So there's nothing special about the one that's, that's in the middle, okay? So I don't, give it any, I don't give it special attention. I don't think it deserves its own word that is vague and meaningless. So, so if, the, if you're advancing the leg and the arm at the same time, that's late. I thought it was early, both of them at the same so time. Early, and then the requires, early requires a delay strategy. If I'm advancing that side forward, it would be very difficult to create a delay. Hmm. That's very hard to digest. Okay. Is, is, is the left side, let's just say the left side's moving forward. Okay. okay. Is, it moving, is it moving forward faster than the other side? Yes, it is. Okay, then it's not being delayed, is it? No. Okay, then it's a, if it's advancing, then the only strategy that I have there is to create the the. Um, oh, the okay, 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 okay. So it's only late, <laughs> mid. Well, not yeah, late, mid, late, mid. Like it's not, it's not going through the entire phase of. Yeah. Narrow everything. You have a narrow window. The way that they create internal rotation is to lean over and limp, right? That's how they advance one side. Mm. 
it would be like walking. So here you go. Um, get two really big blocks of cement and wear them as <laughs> shoes. Okay. And then try to walk and try to advance one leg and then the other leg and then the other leg. That's kind of how you would have to walk. That's how I feel the people who live above me walk. <laughs> wait, wait a second. Hang on. I, so this moment has been recorded. Okay. So here's, here's what I want to throw out here. You guys have probably noticed that Manuel's kind of like this stoic dude, right? He's, 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 he loves what he does. He's very serious about what he does and he takes it very seriously. He just made a joke and he smiled on video, right? And I, have, I, have, I now have two representations that he is capable of, of, of smiling and laughing and telling jokes. So this is awesome for me. I love this. Because you're usually so like, like you're, you're intense and you're serious. And I just love it when you sort of break character. That's awesome. Thank you for that. To piggyback from what, to piggyback from what Manuel said about the heavy walking, those are people who are like, like they're, they, gravity's a lot for them. So those are like yeah. the stompers. They're people that boom, 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 like a T-Rex. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so when when you think about having all this really cool relative motion, it, it's like you're able to 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 um, absorb and release the energy efficiently. So when you hear foot contact, that's an indication that, that you're not absorbing and releasing force. So we can take this concept into the gym. And so when you're doing box jumps with your athletes and you hear the, the slam on the box, it's like, okay, that's somebody that doesn't absorb force very well. So they're kind of telling you what their strategies are and what you might need to actually work on just by sound, just by sound alone. So, because again, if I'm releasing energy as sound, that's energy that I'm not absorbing, which is probably what I'm trying to teach them to do in the first place, right? Does that make sense? So, so makes sense. Yeah. So, chances are, chances are, man. Well, it's like your upstairs neighbors probably need to work on some yielding action. And that was just a light bulb moment for me yesterday. I was like, oh, it's so it's so easy. It just it seems that way sometimes. <laughs> You know, it's too easy. It, I'm paying like all this money for a doctor. <laughs> well, in in concept, in, you know, to, to, you got to put yourself in reality sometimes, right? It, it, conceptually, yes. So if you know what your target is and you you know what the context is that you're trying to create, that's the easy part. You know, when we talk about um, the evaluation process of a client or or a patient or however you want to look at it, um, that is the easy part. Like like once you become reliable enough and, and you start to take good measurements or whatever, or your coach's eye is refined enough and you can see things, it's like, you know exactly what you want to do. That's the easy part. And then you got to work with a human that doesn't understand anything that you're saying, that doesn't have a feel for what you want them to do. And then the execution becomes difficult. That's the biggest challenge that you have, right? So, because, and everybody worries so much about the understanding, which is important. I want people to understand and have a model and a frame of reference to work from. But the bottom line is, it's like, how well can I communicate what's in my head to somebody that has absolutely no frame of reference to start with? There's the challenge. So again, it's like, it, it makes so much sense what you know with the, with the turns and, and how, to, how to keep the head organized and move everything below. 
perfect sense. Now try to get somebody to execute it. There's your challenge. That's going to be the difference maker for you as, as far as your level of success is concerned, because you could be the smartest guy in the room, but if you can't communicate with that individual and you can't get them to understand enough, because they're not going to understand, right? You just got to get them to understand enough that they execute and do enough of the right things to get the outcome that you know that they are, are potentially capable of, right? That's the hardest thing. What does it mean when your kneecaps point inward? Good morning, happy Friday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, great week. Um, great call yesterday morning on the Coffee and Coaches Conference call. If you weren't there, you missed out on a, on a fun one. We had a great time for about two hours yesterday, just going back and forth. So. Please join us uh, next Thursday, 6 a.m., bring your coffee and just kick back and enjoy or participate. Um, today's Q&A is with Johnny. Johnny is a chiropractic student and he had um, a couple of uh, presentations with, with, with patients that he's working with that he wasn't, wasn't quite understanding. And it has to do with how the knees get oriented inward. And um, we took this from the archetype and, and basically deconstructed it. Um, Johnny and I went back and forth on email a little bit after this call and he's on point. He's got it all figured out. He understands what his interventions are, are, are going to be. This is a very common presentation that I think gets misunderstood as to what is changeable. And, and I think a lot of people see this representation. They don't think that they can make a change on it and, and you actually can. So I, I hope it's going to be useful for many people. So thank you, Johnny, for your participation. Um, if you would like to participate in a 15-minute um, consultation, then you just go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and we will take care of you there. Um, we, we've got a few more questions to go through, so, so please be patient if you do request one. And we will see you next week. Johnny, what's your question? All right. So I've seen a couple of clients in uh, clinic. I'm doing an internship for chiropractic school. Oh, okay, great. Which school? Logan University. Okay, yep, I'm familiar. Yep. Nice. So I have a couple. So narrow <laughs> ISA. Yep. High arch in the foot. Yep. Relative tibial external rotation. Yep. So they're so it's like their patellas are pointing a little bit more medial if so their feet are pointing. Do they call them squinting patella? I don't know what they call it. <laughs> they look like eyeballs that are squinting, so they go they go down and in. Oh, yeah. nice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I haven't heard that term yet. <laughs> okay. Now you do. Are you yeah. <laughs> okay. I don't know if insurance right. will cover that. Um, <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> so the with the feet pointing forward, the knees are the knees look like they're squinting. The pills. Yeah, I'm with you, man. So my question is. If the goal is to increase dorsiflexion pronation, how, I guess my first question should be what exactly is going on so I can understand how to address it. Okay. Um, okay. The last thing I'll add is it does seem like distal tibia is a little bit more internally rotated than the prog. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Great description. Great description. So let's, so let's think this through. From, from foundational archetype to the representation that you have now, okay? So if I, if I start with my narrow ISA archetype, my bias is towards external rotation. 
So I would have a situation where, see, I, I knew you were going to ask about the pubs. <laughs> you're, like, you're like the fourth call today. So I, I, I've been sitting with the pubs. So I'm going to have this counter mutated relative ER position here. You see that? Okay. Mm -hmm. This is going to retrovert the, the acetabulum. So I'm going to be biased towards ER. Okay. Now, you, what you've described though at the knee, it looks like the, the patella is in a position of IR and then you've got relative tibial ER, okay? And then you said, this is key element, you go, but the distal tibia looks like it's in IR. So here's what you got going on. You've got ER at the hip, you've got IR at the knee, you've got ER at the knee, IR at the ankle, okay? This is huge, this is huge, okay? Yeah. So if I am biased towards external rotation, right? What that means is I've got the yielding action on the posterior side, which should hold me backwards, right? It should keep me back towards my heels, right? And then it should also lift my arch away from the ground. So, so think about this though. If I'm walking and I have to go through the middle propulsive phase, which is IR, and I'm biased towards ER, and my pelvic position is biased towards ER, how am I going to put force into the ground? I have to create a compensation to okay. produce that force, okay? So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take my ER pelvis, and I'm going to tip it forward. I'm going to orient it, because if I anteriorly orient the pelvis, I can put more force into the ground without changing anything. Gotcha. Okay. okay. Traditional extension, lumbar extension or whatever extension we're going to talk about is internal rotation. It, it's force into the ground, right? Now, mm -hmm. if I am, if I am a, a, a narrow ISA biased towards counter mutation, that's actually lumbar flexion though, isn't it? Okay. Yeah. Lumbar flexion would follow the counter mutation, which means that I'm probably going to go above that level, and I'm going to I'm going to use some form of lower thoracic strategy to tip the pelvis forward from above, and now that's how I get my anterior orientation. You see? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, hang on. If I'm using a lower thorax to create the internal rotation, I'm going to use a posterior lower pelvis strategy in exactly the same way, which is going to produce ER at the proximal femur. Okay. So I got hip ER, no hip IR. Correct. Okay. You follow? Yes. So my IR, so, so far, so far, my IR is coming from above the lumbar spine and below the level of the trochanter. And not in the actual hip joint. Uh, uh, uh. Okay. So I got to go, I got to go below. Like, so, so as I go down from the pelvis, that's where the IR is going to come from. I have to twist inward, inward somewhere. I have to go in, right? So as I, as I go below the level of the trochanter, so that, so my, I got that ER compression right at that trochanter that's pushing it forward. There's my no IRs. But if I go below that, there, there's no muscle that twists the, the, the femur like the glute does. Right. Mm. And so now I can start to turn that inward. So I take my, my big vastus lateralis and I twist the femur and I turn the femur inward. Right. And that's how you get the patella to point in. That's how I get my little squinty patellas. Right. I turn them inward with the femur, but I got a knee joint that I'm going to hit 
right below the femur. I don't have the same force applied, so it's going to be in a relative position of ER. You see it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. But, but I still got to get force into the ground. So what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to take the deep posterior compartment of the lower leg, and I'm going to concentrically orient it. And that's going to create an ER position of the foot relative to an IR position of the tibia. So you see how I get this relative position change? It goes ER, IR, ER, IR, ER, IR. Could you repeat? Yeah, I do. Could you repeat the, the last one with the lower posterior tibial compartment? Yeah. Yeah. So you've got an ER foot, right? You've got an arch. Yeah. That, that means, so, so whether we're late or whether we're early, it means you've got concentric orientation that's holding that arch up. Right? Gotcha. Where do those yeah. muscles come from? Posterior lower. Do you deep posterior compartment of the lower leg, right? Okay. Yeah. But, and then, where they, but where are they attached, Johnny? Test question. Come on, you're a student. Where are they attached? Are they attached to the medial aspect of the tibia or the lateral aspect of the tibia and the fibula? Is it uh, the latter? Yeah. So, so which way are they going to twist the, the proximal tibia? laterally yes er okay yeah there you go so you gotta got but if everything's twisted in the er i still need to produce ir so what can i do that, oh, I know. I'll, just twist the bejesus, I'll just twist the bejesus out of the tibia wow Actually. so there and there's no yeah. particular muscles or muscle groups that would do that or is that just the forces coming back up through the body it is the muscles that are doing that that are re in, internally rotating the distal tibia. Well, I got, I, so I have, I have force into the ground. Like, like you got to remember that I've got force into the ground, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, but I have a foot position that's also going to, going to create a twist as well. You understand? Of the, well, the foot, my, I guess my confusion is that the foot is pointing out. Yep. Then, and where's, then we the have, where's the pelvis over the foot? Where is the pelvis over the foot? It can't. So I can tell you that this person is in late propulsion. Okay. You know why? Because the center of gravity has to be over the foot to get force into the ground. Otherwise, I'm in early and I'm falling backwards. Okay. You see it? Kai, that'll be one I have to re-listen to, but I'm all Stand up. Stand up. Let's do this. <laughs> okay. Put your right foot forward. Okay. Early propulsion. Got it? Yep. Okay. Now, um, step forward with your left foot, but don't shift your weight onto it yet. Step forward with your left foot. Don't put your weight on it. Stay back on your right heel. Okay. Now, I want you to to barely pick up your, your left foot. So it's just touching the floor, but it has no weight on it. And then I want you to get your weight over your right foot. So get over the middle of the foot. Now you feel the weight go down and in? On the right? Yes, sir. Yes. There you go. That's why you got the twist. Okay. <laughs> oh man, that's right. <laughs> all we're doing, all we're doing here is playing games with center of gravity, right? Yeah. Maintaining a, a space to move into and producing force into the ground. 
So you have to have both strategies. Like under every circumstance, anybody that can move through space is, is creating external rotations and internal rotations. It just might not be at the joint. That's, yeah, that's where it gets tricky. Is <laughs> when the bones start to... Yeah, to... yeah it kind of sucks. But think about it. It's like what bone doesn't change shape? Right. None of them. They all do. Right. Right. Um, so as far as addressing this, I would assume starting, uh, where would you start? What, what? Okay. So, so you've got, you've got internal force management and you've got external force management. Which one uh, do you think you have to control first? Probably internal. There you go. So that's the first shape that you need to reacquire. Okay. okay. So would you address the posterior lower thoracic compression before would you go, I'm sorry, to finish the question first, or would you go from the ground up? Or could you do either just depending on how the patient responds? So, so some of that is going to be, be the, the latter portion of your response, right? It's going to depend on the individual. Some, some of it is going to be you're like, you're, some people are going to be better at accessing it from the ground up. Some people are going to be better, but the, but the, the, the general representation is that if you change one of them, they all change to a degree, right? That's the goal. And, mm -hmm. and that's why we use these representations. So, so again, um, uh, my answer is yes, that's what you do. <laughs> right. It's a, it's like a gray, dirty answer, you know, but, but yeah. the problem is, is, is that number one, as long as you understand the representation that, that you have in front of you, it just becomes the experiment as to, okay, which one is more meaningful to this person? All right. Which one do they have better access to? But I would encourage you to look at this from the axial skeletal position first, because that's what controls the internal forces, which you have to manage no matter what. You can create, here you go. You can create compensatory strategies that actually make people feel better, but do not restore the relative motions that you're after. If, okay. I, give you, if I give you a strong IR strategy, that's more force into the ground right? And that might actually alleviate some of the stress that people are feeling where, where, when they come in complaining of pain, because it, it distributes the force that, that they're using to somewhere else. And that, okay. that feels good, right? Somebody walks in with like a left-sided low back pain, right? And, and they're using, they're, let's just say that you, they're using like a left extended spine and they come in, they say it hurts right here. They, they point to their left low back and you go, oh, you're just driving a ton of IR there. Well, let's drive a ton of IR with a forward head. Cool. You just alleviated the, the need to use all the, and this happens, this does happen, right? Yeah. You just took away the need to put all the IR in one place. You just distributed it, which is kind of what we want to do in the first place, right? but it's still not good relative motion recapture, right? But you took the stress away and somebody goes, wow, Johnny, you're like the best ever, right? And then you're, you're like kicking yourself going, I know, but it didn't get what I wanted because I didn't get the ERs back, right? And so, so again, it's like, but it might provide you an opportunity then to access something that they were protecting themselves against. And now you go after that, that, that ER relative motion that you're going to need to create space to move in. Okay. Does that help you? 
Yes, it does. I'm definitely gonna have to come back and rewatch this, but that's totally okay. I'm gonna post it up for the whole world to see, John- Johnny. You're gonna be famous. Awesome, awesome. That's <laughs> <why>. <laughs> um, right. How much time do we have left? You have, you have three seconds. Here, listen. Here it goes. <laughs> awesome.